Bible study, which is going to be in John chapter 4, and you can turn there if you'd like. It's John chapter 4. Let me say a word about the uh, emphasis that our church is going through right now. A couple weeks ago, the pastor introduced us to a new emphasis called Mission 1-8, which is based on Luke's writing of the Acts of the Apostles. And chapter 1 and verse 8, which says that uh, we are to take the gospel into, uh, that we're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we've been given a workbook that we should be working through each week uh, to see how we can be part of this new emphasis of taking the gospel around the world. And in your workbook, you'll notice that this week's theme is sacrifice. And I was looking over the workbook and I was just thinking about sacrifice and I said what does that mean and immediately uh, words that came to me are self-denial that's what it means to sacrifice it means to deny yourself uh, of some uh, pleasure or something in order to do something for someone else or something else it means giving something up uh, sacrifice has been part of church history since the beginning of time Jesus went into the wilderness and he fasted. He didn't eat. He gave something up in order to be close to God and overcome temptation. And uh, throughout church history, uh, the mainline churches have been practicing Lent prior to Easter, which means they give something up. There's self-sacrifice. So that that money uh, that would be used for the food would, could go to the mission of Christ. And, and our church is doing something along that lines. And the pastors ask us to join in in reaching the world for Christ through a local church, which is uh, somewhat of a unique idea. And uh, when you sacrifice, you sacrifice for various reasons. Some people do it uh, for altruistic reasons. Self-sacrifice in order to help some movement or some cause. Or some people uh, sacrifice for delayed gratification. I was just thinking uh, the other day, and Lynn and I was discussing this the other night, that uh, you know there are things that we could have done when we were younger, satisfied ourselves. We chose to delay that satisfaction in order to maybe take care of some of the things maybe your kids need, right? That's self-sacrifice. And uh, the greatest motive, of course, of sacrifice is, is love. And uh, Christ sacrificed himself in order that we could have salvation. And so now as a church, and this would be as Christianity in general, we are to be <coughs> sacrificial. So this week we're asking that you look in your workbook under uh, section 3 about sacrifice and read the scriptures that deal with sacrifice. And then there are three or four questions that are reflective questions, discussion questions, and look over those and... Uh, uh, see what, what God's calling you to do as far as sacrifice is concerned regarding this emphasis. Okay, so now we are in John chapter 4. And uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this gospel of John which brings to life the miraculous ministry of Jesus. And as we go through this and we see the power that Jesus demonstrates, divine power, may we come to 
realize that he indeed is the Savior, and we give him our full allegiance. The Lord, speak through your word today. May we be encouraged, may we be convicted, may we be assured of our salvation. Uh, Lord, help us to grow more like Jesus through this study of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in John chapter 4, and we are going to begin in verse 27. Now, last week we uh, read about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. And we talked about how the Jews really did not uh, have a, uh, an appreciation for Samaritans. And uh, they were at odds with the Samaritans. And so we talked about uh, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And we said that was an oxymoron as far as Jews were concerned because there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. In the Jewish mind, every Samaritan was a bad Samaritan. Okay? And they tried to avoid Samaritans. But Jesus goes into Samaria in order to uh, escape the Pharisees. He knows if he crosses into Samaria, they will not go there. And he meets this woman at the well. And we concluded last week with a woman asking Jesus for a drink of living water, even though she didn't quite understand what he was talking about. Okay? So we'll pick up at verse 27. This is John chapter 4, verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came. Now remember where the disciples were? They had gone into the city to buy food. Remember that? They were going to get supplies. So now they come out of the city to this little rest area where there's the well. And it says at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. And we could add, and a Samaritan woman at that, right? Yet, no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? Uh, they were so shocked that he was talking with this woman, they were just flabbergasted that they, they were silent. All they could do was look at each other. You know, he's talking to this woman. They look at each other, and I imagine their eyebrows went up like this. They're making signals to each other, but they don't say anything. They don't say anything to her. You know, what are you seeking? And they don't say anything to him. What are you talking to her for? Okay. Now, it's very interesting to me when you uh, look at this phrase, you know, what do you seek? They ask, that's what they're thinking about her. What do you seek? Uh, she's not seeking anything. She was just coming to the well to get a drink of water, remember, originally? But someone is seeking something. If you look back at verse uh, 23, notice what it says at the end of verse 23. For the Father, what? Is seeking someone. He's seeking someone to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So God's the seeker. She's not seeking anything. The apostles have it all wrong. And you know something? They usually have things wrong all the time. All the time. Uh, you talk about uh, bringing together 12, a motley crew of 12 people. You would think Jesus, in his divine wisdom, could have picked, you know, at least a college professor. <laughs> something like that. 
But, uh, you know, it's God's the one who's doing something. So they arrive, and uh, they look around, and they're, they're just shocked, you know. And then she probably feels a little uncomfortable with these guys, because they're not even talking. These, these guys show up, and they survey the situation. Jesus is talking to her, and, and they're just sort of going. So look what she does. Verse 28. It says, the woman then left. She left her water pot, and she went on her way into the city. Uh, we don't know if she's uh, uh, frightened by these characters, and that's why she leaves, or possibly she's so excited about her encounter with Jesus that she forgets why she even came to the well in the first place, which was what? Get a drink, get some water. But she drops her pot and she goes into the city. And this shows you the power of conversion. Here's a woman who obviously was a drug addict. Isn't that right? Says she left her pot and she went to the city. It says it right there. At least my translation says something like this. But she's so excited, I think, that she forgets why she even came to the well in the first place, and she goes into the city. Now, look what else it says in verse 28. And she said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Uh, sounds a lot like Philip. Remember when Philip comes up to Nathaniel? And he says, we think, I think we found the Christ. Philip's sitting under a tree. I mean, Nathaniel's sitting under a tree. Remember that? And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. How's that for evangelism? That's the easiest form of evangelism there is. Just come and see. And so she says, come and see a man who told me everything that I did. Could this be the Messiah? Then, notice all these sequence. See, sequence of events. Verse 27. The disciples came, the woman went, and now look in verse 30. And then, there's another sequence word, they, that's the men of the city, went out of the city and came to him. So, very interesting when you look at what's happening here. First of all, the woman comes out of the city to get water. Right? And that's where she meets Jesus. Then the disciples go into the city to get food. <laughs> right? And then the woman, women go into the city. The woman goes into the city to tell the men. The disciples come out of the city <laughs> after they bought their food. Right? And now the crowd comes out of the city. You have this going in and out of the city. Jesus hasn't moved. He's the only one that hasn't moved. And he's still right there at the well. But everybody's coming and going. Okay? And everything centers around Jesus. See? So that's what you have here. So now look what the disciples do. In verse 31. The crowd starts to come out of the city. And they're just starting to move. Okay? They're starting to move out toward that well. Okay? Now, while that's going on, look what the disciples do in verse 31. In the meantime, there's another sequence word. See, there's a time word. In the meantime, the disciples 
urged him, that's Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, remember what time it is. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, what time is it? Noon. It's lunchtime. The disciples come back with the food. <laughs> and they look around and see that he's talking to the woman make their faces. The woman, she goes back into the city, talks to the men. And now they with, probably have their lunch bags and all the food. They say to him, come on, and let's, let's eat lunch. Okay? And in the the, uh, the verb is, uh, is a continuous verb. And they're constantly asking him, eat lunch, eat lunch. And he's sort of like ignoring them. You know? So uh, they're concerned that he needs some food. Now, what you're going to discover is <clears throat> The woman's concerned with water. The water that she comes to the well uh, to get will only last for a couple hours. It'll be gone, and then guess what? She'll have to get another drink. And they're concerned with food. And they say, it's lunchtime, you have to eat. Well, of course, when it's supper time, you have to eat again, aren't you? So the woman and the disciples are interested in things that will expire and you'll have to you know, drink over again and eat over again. So look at Jesus' response in verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Notice they lack knowledge about something. You see that? And what they lack knowledge about is the food that Jesus has to eat that they don't know about. Just like the woman lacked knowledge. She lacked knowledge about the water that Jesus was offering. They lack knowledge about the food that Jesus says that he has. Do you see that? Isn't that what it says there, verse 32? I have food of which you do not know. And uh, remember what he said to the woman? If you knew who it was that was speaking to you, and the water that I have to offer you to ask him. See, those, both of those groups are lacking knowledge, one about food and one about water. Now, they're thinking physical food and physical water, but look at verse 33. Therefore, the disciples said one to another, not to Jesus, they get over in a little huddle, and they say to one another, Did somebody bring him a bologna sandwich that we don't know about? Know what it says there? Has anyone brought him anything to eat? See? They're thinking bologna sandwich. Maybe he must have eaten already. He said, guess what? I've got food that you don't know about. Well, he must have something stashed over here behind that well or something. Where is that food? Somebody bring him something. There's total misunderstanding. Every time Jesus speaks, total misunderstanding. <coughs> He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And what do they think about? Literal temple. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What does Nicodemus think about? Getting back into his mother's womb, another literal birth. He says to the woman, living water, what does she think about? Water in the well. You don't have anything to dip with, she says. Jesus says here, food, and guess what they think about? Bologna sandwiches. See? So there's always this misunderstanding. They're thinking on a literal level, Jesus is thinking on a symbolic or spiritual level. So now we have an explanation. Jesus has to explain this to them. Verse 34, he said, my food is, now he's going to identify it, ready? My food is 
to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Jesus says, my sustenance is being about my father's business. Remember when he was 12 years old and his parents couldn't find him? For how many days? A couple days, wasn't it? What was he doing when they found him? They tried to reprimand him. He said, I must be about my what? He hadn't eaten anything, had he? Oh, yes, he had. He was about his father's business. That was his food. His food was doing the will of God. and He's a man on a mission. And that's what satisfies Jesus. Satisfies more than just regular food. And when you're in the midst of God's will, the amazing thing is, sometimes you just forget about eating. And I've talked to many people who say that, and I can attest to you, for example, and my wife can tell you about this, when I'm studying and trying to prepare, let's say, a lesson like this, and uh, I may, she may bring over a cup of tea and set it down next to me, and uh, two hours later, I haven't even known there was a cup of tea there. Now, why was that? Because I was so absorbed in trying to figure out what God was saying in this text. And I think that's true of anybody who's in the ministry and they're just trying to find out what God wants and uh, trying to complete the mission that God has for them. So Jesus says that that's the food that he eats. It's his ministry uh, that sustains him in a sense. Okay? Now look at verse 35, because now what he does is he gives sort of a parabolic illustration uh, about this mission that he's on. He said, I have to finish his work. Now look at verse 35. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? And the answer is yes. That's what we say. And that was a parabolic, that was sort of a, uh, a proverb. Uh, the Jews would plant for two months. They would uh, have people go out and plant seeds, cast the seeds in the big fields. So it was a two-month planting, planting uh, period. And then... There was four months where the seed was allowed to grow. And then two more months for harvesting the crop. So you had two months planting season, four months growth season, two months harvesting season. So now this is the four months and here's as it's growing. And here's what Jesus says in verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? And the answer is what? Yes, that's what we said. In fact, that could, we can actually place this event right there after the planting has been done. If you want to know when this took place, it took place in that part of the year when farmers went out and planted their fields. And guess what's next? Four months until harvest. We can actually pinpoint that. And so they say yes. And then look what happens in verse 35. Jesus says, Behold, look up, look, see, look. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are already white for harvest. And so they look up, and guess what they see? All the townspeople coming out. That's the harvest. <laughs> And you don't have to wait four months to bring them into salvation and into the kingdom. Guess what? They're already ripe for harvest. Does that make sense? They are the harvest. 
And they're ready to be harvested right now. Jesus said that to the woman at the well, didn't he? She said, should we worship over on that mountain or over on that mountain? And Jesus said, the hour is coming and what? Now is. Right now is the time for people to worship God in spirit and in truth. Right now the harvest is ready to be picked. Right now people are going to be indwelt with the Spirit. Right now people are being brought into the kingdom. Then look at verse 36. Then he makes this statement. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. When you reap this kind of a harvest, there are wages or there are benefits that you're going to get from reaping this kind of harvest. Just like if you reap the regular harvest, guess what? You'd get the corn or whatever you were reaping. You would benefit from it. Those who reap this harvest, there's going to be a benefit. That's what he says. And look what else he says in verse 36. And gathers fruit for how long? Eternal life. This is a crop that's going to last forever. It's not like a stalk of corn that you're going to eat for dinner and you're going to throw the stalk out to the pigs and then it's all gone. This crop is going to last forever. It's a human crop. It's a crop of salvation in a sense. Does that make sense? And then look what he says in verse 36. And both he who sows, that's the planter, and he who reaps, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So now he puts the farmers into two categories. He puts the planters and he puts in the reapers, the harvesters. There are those who plant the crop and those who harvest the crop. And oftentimes they're not the same people. He says, yet they will rejoice together when the crop comes in. And this is a human crop. Remember the story, the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son? The woman loses her coin, and what does she do? She seeks out the coin. Seeks the coin. Lost sheep. What does the sheep herder do? Leaves the ninety and nine and what? Seeks the lost sheep. And here's the son, and the father runs out into the highway, and he reaches out and seeks his son and grabs his, come on home. So here we see a picture of uh, somebody seeking and, and reaping a harvest. And he says, both the sower and the reaper in this human harvest will rejoice together. Notice together. What happens when the woman finds her coin? Anybody remember what happens? She calls in the neighbors and she throws a party and says, rejoice with me. You remember what happens when they find the sheep? Rejoicing. Remember what happens when the sun is found? Rejoicing. They throw a big party and they rejoice. And there's joy in heaven amongst the angels over one sinner who repents. So we see that both those who, those who sow the seed, in this case the seed would be the gospel seed, since it's a human crop, and those who harvest the crop, that's those who bring the person to Christ, both rejoice. There's a cooperation here. Look what he says in verse 37. For this is, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. See the cooperation? You have to cooperate. When you're in the ministry, there has to be a lot of cooperation. One sows, one reaps. See? Look at verse 38. I sent you, you apostles, to reap. To reap what? Reap 
that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. I'm sending you to be reapers of this human crop. See all these people coming? I'm sending you to reap that crop to the kingdom. Now I want you to think about it. And you're going to reap a crop upon which you have not labored. Now, think about it. Jesus planted the seed in the woman. Did the apostles plant the seed? Jesus plants the gospel seed in the woman. The woman plants the gospel seed in the crowd in the city, right? And here comes the harvest. And Jesus says, I'm sending you into a harvest to reap that harvest upon which you did not labor. You didn't do any planting. You're just going to reap. Now, I know what this is about because for like eight and a half years, I was in full-time evangelism. And we were living on the East Coast, and uh, I preached mainly in small local churches, not like First Baptist Church. Sometimes the church would have 125 people. I preached a lot in liberal churches. I preached in mainline churches. I preached in Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Brethren churches. Any kind of church that you can think of, I preached in all these little churches. And uh, I preached on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then all the way through Friday every night. So I preached seven times. And sometimes at the end of the week, we'd see 80 or 100 people saved by the end of that week. And I would go in and I would just reap. I was the reaper. Now, they had a godly pastor in that church. That's why he invited me. If he was a liberal pastor, he wouldn't have invited an evangelist, would he? He was a godly pastor. He may have been in the liberal denomination, but himself, he was very godly. And he would invite me and I'd come in and I would... Reap a harvest upon which I had not labored. That man had labored in that church for years. And you know what? And I would preach and I would give an invitation. And people would come forward and they would get saved. And we would rejoice together. He had a gift of planting the seed. I had a gift of reaping the harvest. Now, there were some rare exceptions where a pastor would say to me, well, I preached the gospel of that person 15 times. Nothing happened. Like, he wouldn't let me know he was really doing his job. You know, and he was sort of defending himself. He didn't have to do that. I knew he was a godly person. I knew he was playing the seed. It was just that I was, I was reaping the harvest, which he had planted. And there were times when uh, a pastor would leave a church. I remember one pastor left a church in this one area. And he went to another area and passed a church and he would invite me to come to that church. <laughs> and we would reap the harvest in that church. And, uh, I, but I was ministering in churches where I had not labored. I was just reaping and then we would rejoice together. We know now that uh, according to evangelism statistics, this is the, the general rule of thumb, is a person usually doesn't come to Christ until they've heard the gospel 16 times. So, you know, these people had been preaching the gospel. They just couldn't read. And I would come in and I would read. And he says, so they'll both be rejoicing. And that's what he's saying there in verse 38. Now we look at verse 39. Now watch this. And many of the Samaritans of that city. So now they have, look what it says. And many of the Samaritans of that city 
believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. I'm going to call that group number one. First group that gets saved are the group of people who have been witnessed to by the woman. Okay. Now look at verse 40. So, when the Samaritans had come to him, see now they're coming out of the city, and a lot of people are coming out of the city, they urged him, that's Jesus, to stay with them. They invite him to stay in their city. And he stayed there two days. And I imagine the apostles thought, oh man, we're going to have to stay in this Samaritan place for a couple more days. You know, there's, they haven't changed their thinking. You know, they said, what are we doing here in Samaria to begin with? We understood we had to get rid of the Pharisees, but now, now we can't we just get through this place as fast as we can? But they asked Jesus to stay there. Now, what a, what a difference between this verse and verse 9. Look at verse 9. This is when Jesus said, give me a drink. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Notice in verse 9, she said, Hey, we shouldn't even be talking. What's happening now in verse, what, 39? They're inviting him to stay for a couple days. You see that? There's one from a, a sort of a position of resistance to a position of an invitation. Why don't you stay here for a few more days? So, they come out and they invite him. By the way, this is sort of the way you invite, way you respond to royalty when it comes. If an emperor would come through your region, you go out of the city to meet the emperor, and then you would extend hospitality to the emperor. And as he would come in, you would say, you know, "Hail Savior" or whatever. You know. And so here they are treating Jesus in a sense like royalty. So he accepts her. He accepts her invitation. He accepts her hospitality, and he stays. Now look at verse. 41. And many more believed. You see that? This is going to call this group two. Group two. And many more believed because of his own word. So he's been staying there for two days and he's been teaching and preaching the gospel and many more believe. And I believe the apostles are probably harvesting the crop as he's preaching. They're harvesting, maybe baptizing them. You know, they haven't done anything, but they're getting the benefits. Okay. And then look at verse 42. And then they said to the woman, that's group number two, now we believe. Not because of what you said, like the first group. Say, For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so here we have the second group of believes, and they proclaim Jesus to be the Savior of the world, which is um, a title that belongs exclusively to Caesar. The phrase Savior, the term Savior, is only used twice in the Gospel of John, referring to Jesus. But Caesar is considered the Savior of the world. Because Caesar would come in and he would deliver a nation from its enemies and they would proclaim him to be the savior of the world. 
So they proclaim Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Now, what does Savior mean? Savior means deliverer. Okay, deliverer. Okay. He's the Savior of what? Of the Jews? Is that what it says in verse 42? No, of the Samaritans also. See? Is he the Savior of the Jews? And the Samaritans? He's actually the Savior of the Jews and the Samaritans and the world also. What's our Mission 1-8 text? Acts 1-8. You shall be witnesses unto me. Where? Jerusalem, where the Jews live. What's next? Judea. Next. Samaria. And then what's the fourth? <laughs> into the world. These Samaritans proclaim Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And they know that they're going to get in on it. See? All this takes place in Samaria, but he is indeed the Savior of the world. And so, next week we pick up with Jesus, then finally after two days in verse 43, he departed from there and he went further north into Galilee and this is where you'll hear that Jesus says that the prophet is not recognized in his own home country. And he performs, he goes into actually into Cana in verse 46. He came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And here Jesus is going to perform his second miracle in this region of Cana and Capernaum. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, that each one of us can have a part in this evangelistic process. Each one of us can be sustained by finding your will and your ministry for our lives. We know, Lord, there are some who plant seeds. And we know there are some who reap the crop and then there are those who just say come and see but we're all part of this evangelistic enterprise and when people come to Christ then we all rejoice together and our rejoicing reflects simply the rejoicing that takes place in heaven amongst the angels when one sinner repents Lord thank you for allowing us to be part of Christ's mission help us to, to do our small part this overall mission of reaching the world for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.